Welcome to Let Genius Burn, a podcast series about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott. I'm Jamie Burgess. And I'm Jill Fuller. In today's episode, we're talking about the issues that stir Louisa's soul, many of which still resonate with us today. We'll be exploring empathy, equality, and emancipation, and getting rid of corsets. This is Louisa as activist. On a chilly New Year's Eve, 1862, at the end of the third year of a bitter and bloody war between the Union and the Confederacy, Louisa May Alcott lay in bed, waiting for midnight. She wasn't feeling like her usual self, full of energy and vigor. Instead, she was worn down, inexplicably achy and exhausted. Beginning two weeks before, on December 17th, when the wounded soldiers from the Battle of Fredericksburg began to arrive at the hospital where she was stationed in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., Louisa May Alcott had been working nonstop to provide for the wounded and tend to the dead. The past two weeks were a blur of writing letters, wrapping wounds, feeding soldiers, telling them jokes. As she became more exhausted by the effort, she was convinced she needed to work harder. This was a trait she inherited from her mother, Abigail, something she had witnessed during Abigail's years as a missionary to the poor in Boston when Louisa was a teenager. Rather than slow down and rest, Louisa began to take runs in the brisk morning air to give her energy and take her out of the hospital walls. This late December night, she had to admit, she was unwell. Then, the bells began to ring out. It was the beginning of a new year, 1863, a year full of hope that the war would end, that there would be freedom and justice for the black people who had lived in slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation came into effect at midnight, and the people of Washington, D.C. were cheering and hollering. Louisa danced from her bed and around the room. Her roommate was less enthused, but Louisa did not let it dampen her spirits. Though her voice was hoarse and sore, she cheered as best she could. She leaned out her window to wave her handkerchief at the crowd of black men celebrating below, who popped firecrackers and sang glory hallelujah. The singing lasted all night. The Emancipation Proclamation was far from perfect. It did not free all men and women in slavery immediately. Instead, it placated certain wealthy slaveholders in the border states. People escaping from slavery in the South had to make it to the North in order to achieve freedom, a dangerous journey that many did not survive. Still, for Louisa, like the revelers in the street, there was a sense of joy and satisfaction at its recognition of freedom. The Alcotts had long been involved in the anti-slavery movement, and Louisa's mother, Abigail, claimed that Louisa had been an abolitionist since the age of three. Their anti-slavery sentiments were handed down through many generations on Abigail's side of the family. Social justice wasn't just Louisa's legacy. It was in her blood. On Abigail's side of the family, Judge Samuel Sewell, her great-great-grandfather, believed the family was cursed when he sentenced 20 women to death during the Salem witch trials. Afterwards, he became known as the repentant judge, believing the only way to lift the curse and right the wrongs was to fight for equality. 
Judge Sewell has a complicated legacy, but is ultimately remembered for writing an anti-slavery tract more than 150 years before the Civil War in 1700 and fighting for indigenous people's rights. Whether or not he was right about the curse, many of his descendants were ardent abolitionists, including Abigail's brother, Samuel May. Samuel served as the first general agent and corresponding secretary of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and he made his home a safe stop on the Underground Railroad. He traveled the Northeast making anti-slavery sermons and speaking on behalf of women's equality as well. In these early years, abolition was not a popular stance. In fact, Samuel May was regularly threatened by mobs and told never to return to Boston. As for Louisa's father, Bronson, biographer Madeline Medell writes, it would have been unthinkable for Bronson Alcott to have been anything but an abolitionist. He was passionate and principled, and more than many of his colleagues, he believed in taking action, even if it meant the use of violence or force for the immediate emancipation of all people living in slavery. Bronson and Abigail brought their fervent beliefs to Louisa's education. The Alcotts too made their home a stop on the Underground Railroad. The work was done in secret, so it's impossible to know who exactly passed through their home at Hillside and Concord. But Bronson described that at least one of these freedom seekers talked openly with his girls about the wrongs against people in slavery. Louisa practiced writing with another man, showing him how to form letters with a piece of coal on their hearth. One of the proudest moments in Louisa's abolitionist activism was welcoming John Brown's widow to Concord in 1860. In 1859, John Brown organized a group of about 20 men to attack Harper's Ferry, Virginia, and take control of the armory there in an effort to gain weapons and free the enslaved people in the area. Now called the Raid on Harper's Ferry, this raid is considered a key event leading up to the Civil War. 16 people died in the raid, including two of Brown's own sons. Brown himself was hanged two months later for murder and insurrection. Far from thinking he had been too violent or radical in his approach, as many did, Louisa referred to him as St. John the Just, and she proudly served his widow with tea and cookies the following spring, thinking of it as the least she could do for the cause. Less than a year from the start of the Civil War, it was still considered radical to be an abolitionist, especially when it came to supporting Brown, whose efforts had led to the deaths of so many. When the authorities came to arrest her neighbor, Franklin Sanborn, for his involvement as one of the secret six who provided funding for Brown's raid, bells rang through Concord, waking up everyone. Everyone, it seemed, except for Louisa and her youngest sister, May, who only heard the following morning how the women of Concord stormed the carriage that was meant to take Sanborn away. One of the women used her own body as a barricade and fought with a cane. These were the women of Louisa May Alcott's community, people she looked up to and learned from. Surrounded by a progressive group, it can be difficult to imagine why others hadn't reached the same beliefs as she did, and Louisa became increasingly incensed by what she perceived as needless inequality and suffering. On May 22, 1856, as debates about slavery were beginning to boil over toward war, Charles Sumner, an abolitionist and senator from Massachusetts, was standing at his desk on the floor of the Senate in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Two days before, 
Sumner had made a fervent anti-slavery speech to the Senate, asking for their support. Preston Brooks, pro-slavery Democrat from South Carolina, approached Sumner at his desk, and as Sumner began to stand, Brooks took out his cane and began to beat Sumner over the head with it. Sumner fell to the floor and became trapped under his heavy writing desk, while Brooks continued to hit him repeatedly with the cane until he was blinded by his own blood. Sumner nearly died from these injuries, and the attack further polarized the two political parties and their differing opinions on slavery. Six months later, Sumner's homecoming in Boston was celebrated with a parade and a demonstration, and Louisa May Alcott was sure to be in attendance. Louisa wrote in a letter to her sister Anna that Sumner looked pale but otherwise healthy, despite the wounds to his head, as he rode down Beacon Street in Boston. In front of the State House, Louisa could not hear the speeches at the demonstration, so instead she tore down Hancock Street and stood opposite Sumner's house to catch another glimpse of him. There, the leader of the cavalcade cried out, Three cheers for the mother of Charles Sumner! Sumner stepped aside, and a small woman stood on the doorstep, waving. More moved by the old woman than by the sight of the senator, Louisa wrote to Anna that she pitched about like a madwoman, shouted, waved, hung on to fences, rushed through crowds, and swarmed about in a state of rapturous insanity till it was all over, and then I went home hoarse and worn out. In 1856, Louisa was young and energetic full of the zest of young people who hunger for change and believe it is possible. As she'd been taught by her parents, Louisa wanted action. She was not content to sit still while inequality reigned. At her first opportunity to join the Union cause as a nurse in 1862, Louisa left home for Washington, D.C. She was prepared to give her life. Not every Northerner supported the immediate and irrevocable emancipation of black people from chattel slavery. But that cannot be said of Louisa May Alcott. She believed in unconditional emancipation, and when her time came to serve in the war, she went willingly, hopefully, ready to make her difference. It was there that she heard the bells ring through the streets in celebration of the Emancipation Proclamation, the beginning of the long road to legal equality. It is a road we continue to walk today. Less than two weeks after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, Louisa May Alcott was too sick to leave her bed. Her father came to Washington, D.C. to bring her home and nurse her back to health. As she slowly recovered over the following spring, Louisa wrote about her experiences in the Union Hospital and published them in the Boston Commonwealth. Her stories were a hit, a term used even back then, and she was approached by two publishers interested in turning the sketches into a book. Louisa eventually chose James Redpath as a publisher because he was an abolitionist, and he agreed to give at least five cents from each copy sold to orphans who had lost their fathers in the Civil War. Even after she nearly gave her life for the cause, Louisa was willing to give the things she wanted and needed most desperately her hard-earned money to those who needed it. Abolitionism was far from the Alcott's only cause. To Bronson Alcott, it was most important that his life should reflect his values, so he lived out his principles and brought his family members along with him, sometimes against their wills. For many years, the Alcotts ate a strictly vegan diet and boycotted cotton because it benefited slavery 
and wool because it was an animal product. This led the family to wear linen, an ineffectual material in cold New England winters. Bronson's family was not always so pleased by his so-called social justice, which seemed to cause them so much strife and create so little change. On the other hand, Abigail Alcott offered Louisa practical ways to live out her beliefs. Her own ideas about dress reform, for example, benefited the girls rather than making their lives more difficult. Abigail thought corsets were a cage, and she encouraged the girls to loosen them so their bodies could function better. Then, she stopped wearing one altogether. Abigail had an enormous capacity for empathy that made her an effective activist who could engage the public to her cause, raising the funds that could truly make an impact. She was especially well-suited for work with the poor, and it became her mission to serve Boston's underserved groups. Abigail's reports on her work, some of which can be found in My Heart is Boundless, the only collection of Abigail's writings published today, offer the best analyses of poverty in this era. Her writings are so relevant that they speak easily to the same issues about the rights of workers and the working class today, some 170 years later. Consider this letter she wrote to the ladies of the Southern Friendly Society. Incompetent wages for labor performed is the cruel tyranny of capitalist power over the laborer's necessities. The capitalist speculates on their bones and sinews. Will not this cause poverty, crime, despair? Employment is needed, but just compensation is more needed. Abigail saw firsthand the needs of the poor in Boston, and despite the Alcott's own destitution, at the time, they were living in a small shack in the same neighborhood as the people she served. She worked herself tirelessly to improve the lives of these immigrants and impoverished people. These experiences within her own family taught Louisa that living out your beliefs about social justice was not optional. Striving for equality and a better world touched every part of her life, from the food she ate to the clothes she wore. It was her moral imperative as a human being. Eventually, when Louisa was no longer well enough to attend demonstrations and pitch about like a madwoman, she sought different ways to participate in political conversation. Like so much of her life, it came down to writing. In writing, Louisa imagined a world where her beliefs made a difference. It was a world of equality between men and women, where women had agency and rights. Louisa's uncle, Samuel May, once said, a perfect character in either man or woman is a compound of the virtues of each. Eve LaPlante, the author of Marmee and Louisa, points out that Louisa used this idea about gender equality to create female characters who were strong, even masculine. Joe, with her boyish name and cropped hair, represents a striving for gender equality, a woman who will not conform to constraints on women directly because she sees them as unjust. As for workers' rights, Louisa's novel Work, a story of experience, also effectively advocates for class equality. The characters are subjected to the worst of the working world, and Christie, the protagonist, even contemplates suicide. The novel explores the conditions of work in industrializing America, advocating for workers' rights, addressing the gender pay gap, and perhaps most importantly, giving voice and agency to the oppressed, making them human and empathetic. After Louisa made her fortune as a writer, she was not content to sit back as a member of the moneyed class. 
The lessons of her years in poverty and the difficulties she'd faced as a woman stayed with her. She remained active and vigilant against inequality until the end of her life. On April 19, 1875, during the centennial celebrations of the Battle of Concord, the women of town were prohibited from participation in many of the events, including the parade where President Ulysses S. Grant rode through town. Enraged by their exclusion, Louisa wrote an article for the magazine Women's Journal that predicted, There will come a day of reckoning, and then the tax-paying women of Concord will not be forgotten. Following in the footsteps of their forefathers, they will utter another protest that shall be heard round the world. The revolution did not come as quickly as Louisa would have liked. When her mother passed away in 1878, women were still not allowed to vote even in local elections. Then, in the summer of 1879, Massachusetts passed a law that allowed women to vote in town elections, elections that involved children and education. The day the law passed, Louisa hurried to the town hall and was first in line to register to vote. She spent the next several months trying to drum up interest among other women in Concord, but she was not so successful. On September 4, 1879, for example, she wrote to Edna Dow Cheney, Our meeting last evening was a small one, and no one had registered because of jelly-making, sewing, sickness, or company, so I gave them a good scolding and offered to drive the timid sheep to the fatal spot where they seemed to expect some awful doom. Even Ellen Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson's oldest daughter, wouldn't register to vote and Louisa remarked on the influence she held over the other women of Concord. They wouldn't vote because Ellen didn't. She signed this letter to Ellen, yours disgustedly. By the spring of 1880, only 20 Concord women were registered and arrived to vote in the school committee election. Louisa lined up with the other women outside of Concord's town hall. Her father went with her for moral support, he said. He proposed letting the women vote first. The 20 women cast their ballots. In a surprising move, Judge Ebenezer Hoare moved to close the polls with only the women's votes. The motion was carried, and the women had the only say in who was elected to the school committee in Concord that year. It was a tiny consolation for hundreds of years of patriarchy and oppression. When Louisa was a teenager, Abigail Alcott had organized and presented a petition to the Massachusetts State Constitutional Convention on behalf of women's suffrage. Her petition was rejected 108 to 14. Still, Abigail never gave up hope. When she was 73, she said, I mean to go to the polls before I die, even if my daughters have to carry me. She did not live quite long enough. Louisa cast her ballot that day for Abigail and all Abigail taught her about gender and racial equality. But the fight, as today, was far from over. Stay tuned for our conversation. But first, in the spirit of the Alcott's strong beliefs and actions for social justice, each week we are highlighting an organization we believe in and asking for your support. For this episode, we're supporting the Robbins House in Concord, Massachusetts. The Robbins House is a Concord-based nonprofit organization focused on raising awareness of Concord's African, African-American, and anti-slavery history from the 17th through 19th centuries. 
Learn more and donate at the links in the show notes or on our website, letgeniusburn.com. So I feel like this episode could go for about three hours because there's so much to cover. And um, the fact that you could distill it down so well is a huge feat because there's just so much that the Elcots were involved in and, you know, just all of the, um, some of the historical context of some of these movements too, um, kind of hard to, you know, wrap our heads around, but nice job. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Definitely wasn't wasn't easy because like you said, there's so many really interesting causes that they cared about and that they devoted so much time to. We didn't really get to talk about Bronson as much. I want to focus in this episode on Abigail's side of the family, her particular legacy that Louisa inherited and how that affected her. But it's true that very early in his life, Bronson Alcott went to the South and he was like a peddler. He sold books on plantations. He would just walk up to a plantation with his suitcase and often slept in slave quarters. And that was really his first interaction with with slavery as a real thing instead of just a concept. And so it definitely contributed to his abolitionism. And then, of course, I really love the story about Anthony Burns, which did not make it into this episode, but it's just a classic. Bronson Alcott was so moved by this particular trial. There was this person who had been enslaved and he escaped and he made it to Boston. And many people believe that he should be free and allowed to stay. And um, there was a trial to send him back to the South. And Bronson Alcott was ready to storm the the building where he was being held. He was being held in a in a jail cell. And Bronson got there and there's this little mob of people and he goes <laughs> running up the steps and he says, why are we not within? Everyone was like, because the guards have guns. Um, and actually, didn't he didn't get shot. He was unscathed. He just kind of like and he actually walked, walked into the building. He went yeah. into the building. Yeah. He was the only one who walked in. They said, like, I think someone commented that they didn't expect to, like, see him alive again, but unscathed came out. Yep. As Bronson always was. So, you know, he did at least attempt to put his life on the line there for this cause. And I believe he would have, you know, I, I do for all the like jabs we take at Bronson. I do believe he would have. One of the things he said about Louisa after she came back from the Civil War and she was really never quite the same was he would not have let her go so willingly if he had known the sacrifice. Like he considered her a casualty of the war, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting too, because I do think he would have died for the cause, but would not have wanted to give one of his daughters. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that connection. Um, Anthony Burns did end up having to go back to slavery, which was... He did. Yeah. I, I believe he tried escaping again. Um, and this was during... This was the reason that he had to go back was because uh, the Fugitive Slave Act had already been put into effect. And so this was why, just for a little historical context for our listeners, because I'm all about context. <laughs> so yeah, so that was why even being up in Boston, he wasn't considered free. One of the things I think that's important, speaking about context, because I'm, <laughs> it's my favorite thing to talk about, is uh, that, you know, the abolition movement, and you touched on this in the essay, was not 
very popular, uh, at least for, you know, the immediate and full emancipation. I mean, abolition wasn't popular at all, but those who did consider themselves abolitionists were kind of moderate abolitionists that thought that it should be gradual because it's going to destabilize the, you know, the Southern economy. Um, so it was more kind of a something that would take place over a long period of time, or if emancipation did occur, that the former slaves should then not be integrated into white society, that they should go to Liberia, that, that they needed to go back to Africa, um, even though many of them had been, most of them at this time, had been born in the United States and had been in the United States for generations. But the there was a very small group uh, of abolitionists who didn't, who believed in immediate emancipation with full integration, and that's where the Elcott family fell in. And you know, even among the abolitionist circles, there was lots of debate about what should happen and what should happen to the slaves, what should happen uh, with the, the economy in the country. But so it's important to think about that abolitionism at this time, it wasn't cut and dry. It wasn't just abolitionists wanted this one thing. You know, there was lots of debate within those circles. And then the circle itself was pretty small. We think of abolition today as obvious and honorable, you know, wanting to free the slaves and wanting slavery to be ended. But the thing is, at the time, it was extremely unpopular. There were riots. There were, you know, Samuel May, Abigail's brother, lost his job. William Lloyd Garrison, who was the editor of The Liberator, which was a famous abolitionist newspaper, he was like tarred and feathered. He they had to lock him in a jail cell at one point to keep him safe from the like mob trying to get him. Um, I believe that his newspaper offices were targeted and burned. I mean, there was a lot of violence and a lot of really passionate, strong emotion um, about the abolitionist cause and people were really against it. So we think sometimes of like John Brown or we think of, you know, Kansas, bloody Kansas, but that was happening, you know, these intense, extremely emotional responses to the abolitionist ideals was happening all over the North. So I personally, I think of movements today, social justice movements today that are happening. And I see a lot of parallels between those because right now there are movements that are not very popular. And right now, looking back a hundred some years later, we can say, oh yes, abolition, that was, you know, something I'm so glad that we did that. You know, but right now we're living through movements, we're living through Black Lives Matter, we're living through these extremely important times where we're looking at people and at um, how people have been treated and are being treated and what equality really looks like in our society. And to, I, I think, to make those parallels and to really see that the unpopular movements make the most difference. And that's personally what I feel when I look at the abolitionist cause. And I also wanted to add that it's also extremely important, you know, most of, you know, the abolitionists that we've been talking about tonight, we've barely dipped into it, but the ones we've been talking about have been primarily white and most of them have been men like William Lloyd Garrison and Samuel J. May. Um, but there was a, a large group of black abolitionists who were working tirelessly in the North. You know, we know of Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, but there were, you know, they were supported by a huge free black community in New England, in Philadelphia, in New York. So it's really important because those names and the people that contributed to that and were really dedicating their lives to this cause, a lot of times white abolitionists are the most remembered. It's really important to remember that there was a large group of black abolitionists as well. No, you're exactly right. And I was 
writing this episode in the summer of 2020 as the Black Lives Matter movement was really gaining a lot of momentum. And I was repeatedly asking myself, you know, what would it be like if Louisa May Alcott were alive today? What would she be doing? How would she be contributing to this movement? Not would she be contributing because she would absolutely be there. Yep. But what actions do I really think that she would be taking? And I really felt like there was very little I could do that would have a meaningful impact. But when I went back to the history and when I read about Louisa's actions, I thought, you know, it seems so small. She was only in Washington, D.C. for three and a half weeks before she got really sick. She had these, you know, moments where she was really involved in the activism, but I think she always felt like there's more she could be doing. And like with other, you know, areas of Louisa's life, like we've talked about with writing, it was the same kind of feeling where I was like, well, one of the ways that I think I can meaningfully contribute to talking about these issues would be to move forward Louisa's legacy, like talk about Louisa as an activist, because she was really devoted, not, I mean, we've talked a lot about abolition tonight, but, you know, just to all these these causes that we mentioned, the dress reform, the women's suffrage, she was furious with Ellen Emerson that she didn't stick up for women's suffrage. And I think that the Alcotts were also very upset when Ralph Waldo Emerson himself didn't speak out against slavery. I mean, he had the biggest voice of anyone in the transcendentalist group, and he was very late to the game in terms of abolitionism because he didn't want to rock the boat. And it just goes to show, like you said, that that was really a dissenting opinion. To be an abolitionist could be putting your own life on the line. And it's kind of like, well, what's your reputation compared to the millions of lives of people who are enslaved? I mean, like you said, it seems easy in hindsight, but in practice, it was obviously very difficult. And it was difficult for Emerson, who had to think of his family and would they be ostracized? Would they get attacked? Something like that. And eventually he did stand up for mm -hmm. it and speak out to it against it. But it took a long time. Yeah. And that was not the experience of the Elcats. They always spoke out against slavery. Um, I think reading My Heart is Boundless, which is that collection you mentioned in the essay about um, with Abigail's writings, she the stuff that she says about abolition, about slavery is just so compelling. And so she's so passionate about it. She writes about like, this is the, the primary evil of our society, you know, and until the black man has equal rights and protection, our country cannot be a united country. I mean, like she literally says that. And it's just, yeah, reading that I'm like, well, we are still here. We are still dealing with this problem. Um, we have not learned anything. And so it is just to read about the Elcott's beliefs. It is inspiring. And it is, like you said, to think about like what how would they be interpreting what's going on right now? Where would they be involved? Because they would be, like you said. Right. And um, I had jotted this down earlier, but there was a line in the Bedell biography where Abigail was talking about going around and asking for donations for her help with her missionary work. So she was at, at different times, she was funded by 
church organizations. And then sometimes she just did this on her own where she would actually go out into the community and, you know, bring clothes and food, give medical care, help people apply for jobs, just, you know, social work functions. And this one time she was asking for donations and not getting any. And she said about these people, they would decline keeping company with Jesus Christ if he were on earth. And um, just after I read that, I watched this little clip of AOC talking about almost the exact same thing. She was like saying like, if Christ himself walked in here, I am convinced that you would dismiss him as a radical. And like, there has to be empathy. We have to start thinking about other people. And it just, yeah, it just resonated with me so much. That whole rant that Abigail goes on about the capitalist, you know, oppression. It's like, okay, here we are 170 yeah. years later. Past and present just colliding. Right, right. And it's just, unfortunately, and I mentioned this a couple of times in the essay, but a feeling of like, oh, we still have such a long road. Have we really made no progress? And unfortunately, kind of feeling that way, but at least we're not alone in the sentiments of, you know, wanting equality and, and wanting the society to be better. People mm-hmm. still haven't given up. I guess that's something optimistic we could take away. Well, and I think it's like with anything in history, it's so important to see that this is nothing is new under the sun. We're still having these same conversations. And while that can be disheartening, <laughs> for sure, I think it's also important to remember that you know the past wasn't just this rosy, perfect place and everyone was happy and everyone was in their proper place and you know, no one was rocking the boat. And now, you know, everyone is all upset about things. And now everyone's trying to make changes. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, the past is full of people who have said, you know, wait, wait a second. This isn't, this isn't okay. Let's, you know, let's, let's fix this. You know, I've always said like being, you know, loving your country means wanting to make it better. I mean, I love my kid, so I don't want my kid to just continue on doing whatever behavior he wants to do or whatever. I'm going to guide him down the right path. Um, And I kind of feel the same way. And I think that the Alcott's had that thought too, because they mentioned multiple times, like their, their dedication to their country. I mean, the Mays, Abigail's side of the family were tied to the revolution and to these old families. They had such pride of being descended from these New England families that had been in New England since white people had come and taken the land, you know, but they had been there from the beginning and they were proud of that, at least their, that lineage. Um, And so it wasn't that they weren't patriotic or that they did not love their country. It was that they saw that their country could be a lot better. And I think that that is a lesson that we can all continue to take too, especially for those of us. I mean, you and I are both speaking, we're here in the United States, but I think that that can be pretty universal as well. You know, when you love something, when you're part of something, when you belong to something like a country, you want it to be the best for everyone. I know I feel that personally, and I I see that come up again and again in the Elcott's writings and work. Right. And some things definitively have improved. I would say women's suffrage is a great example. I would say um, dress reform is a great example. Women have other oppressions when it comes to how they dress. But they are not so bound to clothing that literally damages their bodies anymore. So I think, you know, those were some ideas that the Alcott's had that were forward thinking. And then 
you know, society kind of caught up to them. And then there were still other ideas that were so forward thinking that they had, they were still not quite there. Like Bronson's ideas about diet reform, like so many, many people are not, you know, moving into his ideas about, it was almost like sustainability, right? He And animal rights, of course, he talked a lot about animal rights, which he definitely had this idea, like, if you eat something that kills the whole plant, then you do more damage than if you eat something that's like coming from a tree. So he was, for example, this big supporter of eating pears all the time. And he would talk about how pears were the perfect food. And he really wigged out Nathaniel Hawthorne with his speech about pears. But he thought like, oh, it's better to just like pick this pear from this tree and like leave the tree intact than to pick something like a head of lettuce, which kills the whole plant, or dig up the earth to like unearth something like a potato. So just so interesting how he had this like hierarchy. And it was all based on this idea of doing no harm. You know, it was was based around, okay, we don't eat animals because we don't believe in doing harm to other sentient living things. And I just think that stuff, I personally think, this is my personal opinion, I'm not trying to reflect Jill or the podcast, but my own opinion is that there is a time in the future where many of those ideas are thought of as very standard and normal. Maybe not the lettuce thing, but, (laughs) you know, doing no harm, like being kind to animals. And though the Alcots had those ideas and like we still haven't caught up to them. It's been all this time and like, wow, they're still in the future for us. I think that's pretty cool. I'm not going to be able to harvest potatoes out of my garden ever again without thinking of Bronson Alcott now. You are disturbing the earth when (laughs) you harvest those potatoes. We just planted a couple weeks ago. I disturbed the earth. I planted my potatoes in a hamper, so they're not really in the earth. They're like in a hamper. I have never heard of that, but now I have to Google this. I think what's honorable about the Alcott's with all of this, and I think what we've learned this year is that we all have a choice. We have a choice about what we're going to participate in beyond just posting something on social media, beyond just reading news articles. You know, we have a choice about how we're going to actually participate in movements and in collective change. We can choose what we do with our time, with our money. We have those choices. And I think about the Elcots and the choices that they made to really live out those principles to the point where they're in violent demonstrations, they're wearing linen, you know, they're like freezing in the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. I mean, and some of that, some of that we can laugh about, but really what it shows is that this is a family, this is a group of people that made deliberate choices and really thought about how their lives and the way they lived it made an impact. I don't know if we really think about that from day to day about what kind of an impact our life makes um, on others, on the planet. I mean, we're still, we're having those conversations now, but I mean, how much do we really live that out? What kinds of choices do we make consistently? Uh, Not just one-time donations or once in a while, I'm going to remember to, you know, whatever. What kinds of consistent choices do we make in order to align our lives and its impact with what we believe? I think that that's something that we all could reflect on deeply. And I think that the Elcots did, and they they didn't hesitate to do that. 
Absolutely. I think one, it's about having integrity. Are mm-hmm. they still doing the, the right thing even when kind of no one is watching? And I think Fruitland mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that. Literally, no one was watching and they were trying so hard to do this like morally upright thing. And, you know, I, I mentioned this in the essay, but I do think that we we can see Bronson and Abigail kind of on two ends of the spectrum here. Maybe Bronson would be the social media activist who is like, really, mm-hmm. he believes in it, but like, it's not always making the change. Whereas Abigail could give like, very concrete uses of her energy. Okay, I'm going out to like help these 11 people look for a job or something. You know, she was really so hands-on. People describe Bronson Alcott like a man in a hot air balloon with his wife holding the rope, keeping him tethered to the earth. And I think that's really true. And I think they do kind of represent two different ways about of going about activism. But I also was thinking those values were what made them a family. Like we often, we so often focus on the ways that they were different, the tension within the family. And yet Bronson and Abigail, as we've said before, they were a love match and they did have things in common. And one of those things was these values. Like Bronson supported his wife's efforts and he believed in her and he believed in women's suffrage and he you know, she could never have been married to someone who didn't believe in those things. You know, she would have, her soul would have withered away if she had been in some dry, oppressive marriage. Her marriage is arguably oppressive in other ways. But in this particular way, I think it's really important to give Bronson credit where credit is due. Um, For those of us who read and study Louisa's life, it's not to say that her activism and her belief in these causes are like on equal footing with her writing life. But in many ways, like I think I was taking this for granted that, oh, this is something that everyone knows about Louisa May Alcott, that she was like not just a writer of children's books, but that she really was a fervent supporter of many social causes that she devoted a lot of time and energy to these kinds of things. The whole family did. It was very important to their identity as a family, et cetera. You know, these things are touched on in Little Women. And then in the movie version, certain directors have tried really hard to like bring them forward a little bit to kind of like give more attention to the fact that like, oh, the March family is like, taking care of this poor family and like bringing them food and, you know, charity is important to them. But maybe many people who've read Little Women have never thought about the fact that Louisa came from a family where this was absolutely one of the most important things in their family dynamic, in their daily lives. Every day, I think they were living out some kind of social ideal that they had in one way or another. And so we didn't necessarily talk directly about the impact that the activism had on her writing, except for a little bit, I guess, about hospital sketches. But it was a huge part of her identity as a writer too, I think. There are some short stories about abolitionism. There's one called My Contraband. There's another one called ML that directly addressed like the Civil War and Civil War issues. And then... May Alcott Nieriker, so the youngest sister, 
her painting, uh, her famous, most famous portrait is of a black woman that she painted it in Paris in the 1870s. So May referenced abolitionism when talking about the painting and said like, this was a painting that was inspired by the abolitionist movement. And it is considered her masterpiece. And I think it is, you know, an absolutely stunning portrait, very moving piece. Yeah, I think I read somewhere, and I'm going to paraphrase, I read somewhere that it's striking because the woman is in the foreground. There's really nothing in the background. It's just her, not her surroundings. She doesn't, you know, it's not her as like an object or as part of a scene. You know, it's just like seeing her in her humanity. I was really struck by that. I'd, I'd seen the picture or the painting before, but I hadn't really appreciated it until I had read that. So the the actual original painting is with May's descendants in Europe, but there's a, a really good copy at Orchard House, uh, not in the museum itself on display, but up in like the research library. And it's just, yeah, it's stunning. It's very large. I'd say it's like, oh gosh, two feet by two and a half or something. Quite big. And um May wrote that the model for the portrait was actually quite like a jovial, joyful person, but that she specifically chose to give her this kind of like sullen and deep expression. Very pensive, yeah. Yeah, and to, as a way to like hint at her her past in chattel slavery. And Bronson said, you know, it, it rivals Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin for its anti-slavery sentiment. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> you might not think that much anymore. But he definitely saw that and, and May wrote home too to say like it was inspired by the abolitionist sentiments of her youth. So this was something that affected them through their lives. And I don't think we could underestimate the impact that it had on the psyches of all four four daughters, I'm sure. But -hmm. specifically as it came through in their art. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And I suppose we should always do a caveat of that they weren't perfect. They had, you know. Certainly not. Beliefs and thoughts that maybe don't still resonate today. But for the most part. Well, Louisa hated Irish people. She so. did. She hated Irish people. And uh, Bronson did say some really racist things about Black people. Bronson's kind of the guy that's like, he's more about ideals and actual reality. So ideally, immediate emancipation would sound great, but going to say racist things about like how Black people actually look, because like when it comes down to it, man, Bronson always disappoints you. So yeah, I mean, we do have issues where, you know, the Elcots were not perfect and they had some beliefs that are problematic. And Louisa had her own, you know, she biases. She had her own biases. Yeah, she was biased against Irish people. This was a time where there was a large immigration from Ireland, um, kind of from the 1840s through, you know, the early 1900s, so right during Louisa's lifetime. And she did, you know, she did have a couple of times where she expressed some prejudice against against the Irish, against having Irish maids. So we don't want to give the impression that the Elcots were perfect or that they were somehow, you know, super woke and they had all the answers and the rest of society didn't, but we're all imperfect and they were too. But for the most part, I mean, it is, I think it is important, like you were saying, with looking at their their art, their writing, 
all of the causes that they believed in, all of the principles that they had contributed to that. Because, I mean, you can look at almost any of Louisa's books and she's writing about, you know, women's suffrage, or she's writing about women's rights in marriage, or she's writing about abolition and about emancipation in some of her short stories. So it all influenced how she, what she thought, what she was going to express, using her writing as a vehicle to express those things. And then even with her children's literature, you know, she used to kind of preach that, that girls can do whatever they want to do. You know, girls can have careers, those kinds of things. I mean, those were things that she fervently believed and that's how she expressed it and how she spread that message. We'll see you next week for episode six, Louisa as Celebrity. For more about Louisa, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Let Genius Burn. In the spirit of the Alcott's beliefs in social justice, each week we're highlighting an organization we believe in and asking for your support. For this episode, we're supporting the Robbins House. You'll find more information, including the resources used for this episode, in the show notes and on our website at letgeniusburn.com. Mm-hmm.